Act 1, was titled Despair. Even though it was the opening act of a beautiful love story between Boaz and Ruth, there wasn't a lot of romance last week on Valentine's Day. When, because of a drought in Israel, we followed Elimelech and his family, which included Naomi and the two sons, Malan and Kilian, to Moab. It was there that Elimelech and his two sons all died, leaving Naomi in a desperate circumstance without any means of support in her somewhat advanced years. When Naomi heard that the crops were good back home in Bethlehem, she decided to go, and her two daughters-in-law went with her, Orpah and Ruth. When they had traveled a bit, Naomi told the two girls to go home. It was the responsible thing to do. And after a little bit of protest, Orpah decided to go back home. But Ruth said that she would indeed go along with Naomi. Naomi protested, but then relented. And she did so when Ruth would not be deterred and told Naomi so in rather dramatic fashion. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi relented, of course. How do you walk away from a commitment like that? So Naomi and Ruth made their way to Bethlehem. You know, it was her commitment Naomi's commitment to Yahweh that makes her commitment to Ruth seem small in comparison. When the two ladies arrived in Bethlehem, the town was all astir because of the despair that covered Naomi like a blanket. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi didn't see the whole picture. But you've been there, haven't you? All of life is bitter. But if we belong to Jesus, life will be wonderful beyond our wildest imagination. That day will not come, of course. Until the day we're made perfect, until the day we stand before Jesus and we are made just like Him. And we're perfect in every way. Circumstances in this life may yet turn. That's not our ultimate hope, though, as we shall see. But we must remember when we feel like Naomi, that there is always more to God's plan for us then we're able to see it present. That's where Act 2 begins, and it is titled Hope. Before we get in hot and heavy to a summary of Act 2, it would be helpful for us to understand the meaning of the names of the characters in this play and the importance of those names. We begin with a minor character, but one whose action set the stage for all that follows. Elimelech means... My God is king. That's rather ironic when you think about the definition that we have established for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God 
is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And yet, Elimelech left the land. Was it sin? Who knows? It's some irony here, though, that he would leave God's land. And yet, Elimelech, again, sets the stage for all that would follow. No doubt, Naomi felt as though her husband's actions in abandoning God's land had caused God to render null and void the covenant with their family, at least. Okay, so maybe God has a covenant with the nation of Israel, but as far as our family is concerned, we walked away from God, and He's abandoned me, and He's testified against me, and all of my life is bitter. Naomi, you will recall, means pleasant and good, but she wouldn't allow people to call her that. She said, call me Mara or Mara in the Hebrew. Call me bitter. The two sons of Elimelech were named Malan and Kilian. Now, that would be difficult enough. Somebody say, hey, what's your name? Malan, Kilian. That'd be tough enough until you find out that it means sickly one or death. I mean, I guess there's a possibility that when Malam was born, that Naomi said, let's name him Abraham or Joseph. And Elimelech said, no, his name shall be called Sickly One. I mean, I guess that's a possibility. Most likely, they had lived a little while and then were named because they were weak boys. But nonetheless, their names portended poorly for them. It foreshadowed trouble for them. Ruth means... Well, we don't actually know what Ruth means, interestingly enough. Nor do we know what Orpah means, although we are fairly certain she spent most of her adult life in Chicago. Now, in very short order, the hero of our story, Boaz, will be introduced as soon as we finish this name chart. In fact, we're not exactly sure what Boaz means, but we are told that he was a man, a worthy man, which means a man of good reputation. He turns out to be a great man, in fact, and paints for us a beautiful picture of Jesus. All of the events that we're following occur in the town of Bethlehem. It is in Bethlehem that the bread of life will one day be born. As it turns out, this story is not just a beautiful romance between Boaz and Ruth, with Naomi being a a, a wonderful beneficiary of that relationship. As it turns out, this story is about a beautiful relationship, ultimately, between Jesus and you, and all those around you being great beneficiaries. We'll make the connection fully next week in Act 3 when we talk about redemption. There's not going to be nearly as much application today as I want because we've got so much ground to cover. But believe me, it will come all the way full circle next week as we think about the redemption that is ours in Jesus. That's where the drama is leading. But today sets the stage. We've got a lot to do, so we'll get started as soon as we ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Our Father... We thank you for your great plan of sending your son, Jesus. We see Jesus all the way through Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And our hearts are drawn to worship him. So, Father, today, as we consider 
all of the events that are leading to this beautiful, beautiful story. We recognize that that's exactly what you were doing uh, years ago, these many thousands of years before Jesus came. You were leading this story to a conclusion of redemption in Jesus. And so help us to, to gain an understanding of all that is written here so that our hearts might be prepared for the incredible news that we will see next week. Be with us this day and speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Act 2 begins, Naomi is sitting in her home moping because of the despair that she feels. You ever been in a place like that, just sitting there? You can't do anything. She should be telling Ruth what to do, but but she's not. So Ruth is not going to sit around when the cupboards are empty. She says, I'm out of here. I'm going to get some food. Naomi doesn't give her any direction. Ruth is a is a young woman in a foreign land. It's a dangerous thing that she's about to do to go glean in the fields. No direction at all. And Naomi says, okay, okay, that's good. I think it's a good thing. You know, Ruth's plan to go and glean in the fields was a practice that was not only ordained by God, it was written into the law. Gleaning, uh, you will recall, was the practice of going behind the harvesters in a field and gathering up the leftovers. Now, there weren't always that many leftovers because these harvesters were quite careful. I mean, you didn't work for a man for long if you just left a whole bunch of stuff behind. But the Lord basically had said, look, let them do it. And there's the implication in this law. Leave some for people to glean, the poor people. Gleaning was especially important for widows, the fatherless and alien residents who lived in Israel because these groups were, were, were almost always poor and it was their only way of survival, the only possible way they could get by. But as is so often with other laws like texting while you're driving, this one was often ignored. In fact, there's evidence, even in our story, that that poor gleaners were often despised and physically abused. May have even happened to Ruth. Ruth went to what would have been a very large field with tracks that were divided up, different tracks, and, and they were owned by, by various men in the community. Ruth 2.3 says that she just happened to come into the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. So you get the picture. It's not like, okay, this is this man's field on this side of the road. And this is Farmer Jones' field over here. No, it's this huge field. But tracks are divided off. And and you would go to a particular tract of land and, and start gleaning. And she just happened to come to Boaz's part of the field. The irony of the narrator is great when you realize that, that literally this could be translated in, in, in the Hebrew as luck would have it. I mean, it's the same thing as, as we would say. Hey, how did you get that? Just lucky, I guess. As luck would have it, she got there. You know, I imagine every single one of us wonders how life would have been if we had not gone to that particular place on the night that we met our spouse. Or if we had not been at a particular place when when someone influenced us toward a particular school or or career or 
If we had just been one car ahead, that one car that was about a tenth of a mile in front of us when the other car veered across the median and crashed into it head on. How different would life have been if it had not been for these chance meetings, both good and bad, that happened to us? Well, that's where Ruth was when she happened onto Boaz's field. She wasn't there on purpose. Naomi had not given her direction. She didn't even know who Boaz was probably. I don't know. Maybe Naomi had talked about him. But she was so depressed that she hadn't said much of anything. So Ruth just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But it wasn't by chance as the narrator sets us straight Almost immediately, Boaz comes onto the scene and he greets his workers in the name of Yahweh. The Lord be with you. And the point the narrator is making is, is Yahweh is all over this chance meeting between Boaz and Ruth. It's not luck. It's the providential will of Yahweh. Well, the workers respond with a blessing in Yahweh's name. Everything... We see about this man, Boaz, is great. In fact, everything we see about him is spectacular. You know, maybe you've said, you know, the only characters in the Old Testament that didn't mess up along the way were Daniel and Joseph. But add Boaz to that, to that group. Not as big a character as they were, but, but my goodness, what a guy. He was a man of character. And of good standing in the community. A spiritual man. And a man with a very kind heart for those in need. And he knew that Ruth was in need because she had been gleaning in his field. And he said, who is that woman? Now, why did he ask that? I don't know. Maybe he was immediately attracted to her, even though he was a good bit older than her. And he was interested. At any rate, he inquired about Ruth And when he was told who she was, he called her over. And he said very compassionately, he informed her that her concerns for getting food were over. You don't have to worry about this anymore. From now on, I'm taking care of you, Ruth. He informed her that not only could she find food in his field, but that he had just given explicit orders for his workers not to harm her in any way. Now, this is just speculation. We don't know one way or the other, but it could be that his workers have already harmed her. I I can't imagine Boaz tolerating that, but it's possible. It could be that his... And she was on her way off, and he comes on the scene and he says, Hey, who is that? What's going on here? And he stops him from doing it, and then calls Ruth to herself. Whether that's true or not, it was immediately clear to everyone that Boaz had taken a very special interest in Ruth. I'm sure it was clear to everybody when Tony Grabowski had taken a very special interest in Teresa. The man was crazy in love. Well, this kindness stunned Ruth, and frankly, it stunned everybody around him. Everybody around the two. They're sitting there, and some of the workers are saying beneath their, you know, under their breath, they're saying, I cannot believe what I am seeing. Did you see that? Did you hear what he said? They're stunned. Ruth had no idea who Boaz was. But she had to know that he was an important. Had to. It was almost unheard of for someone like him to take notice of someone like her. This was just... 
you know, the things, kind of things you read about in fairy tales. The only thing is, this is really happening. A story that really happened. Do you understand why Charles Spurgeon calls Boaz our great and glorious, or Jesus our great and glorious Boaz? Because of the interest that he took in us when there was absolutely no reason whatsoever for him to do so. And the ways that he redeemed us that we're going to, or the way that he redeemed us that we're going to talk about next week. Ruth asked Boaz, why have I found favor? And Boaz said, you know what? I know who you are. You may not know who I am, but I know who you are. I've already heard about you, and I'm impressed with your sacrifice on behalf of Naomi. But I'm far more impressed with the fact that you have come to Bethlehem knowing that she will die well before you. And that you have put yourself under the care of Yahweh. And I want you to know that I affirm that. Boaz prayed for Yahweh's blessings on her in the highest possible way. But he did more than pray for her. He invited her into his presence at at, at mealtime. Again, unheard of. And made sure that she ate until she was full. And I'm sure that Boaz had something to do with her having enough food left over to take home to Naomi. His kindness didn't stop with Ruth, but it extended to Naomi. And we'll see that very specifically. We've already seen it in the reading on the screen a little earlier. Well, Boaz then further instructed his harvesters who would naturally, as we've already said, be very careful not to leave much behind. Boaz said, leave some behind. Take full ears and just put them on the ground. Let her get plenty to eat. Can't you see him mumbling to yourself? I don't know. That's what he said to Man's crazy, I guess. You know, he thought he'd lost his mind and perhaps he had. You know, perhaps he was in as deeply as Tony was one day. Whether Boaz had a severe case of love at first sight or whether this was just deep compassion coming from his heart, regardless, maybe it was both, he acted passionately on what the Lord had put in his heart. Well, Ruth set the record for gleaners that day. Never before, never since has anybody gleaned as much as Ruth gleaned on that day she took home a substantial amount of food probably enough to feed when you start doing the 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 calculations she had enough to feed naomi and herself for a week the two of them were going to be able to eat for a week her mother-in-law immediately knew the significance of, of what had happened someone had extended great kindness to her who is it Boaz, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is beyond my wildest dreams. Naomi all of a sudden is out of her depression. All of a sudden, she has hope because of that one word, Boaz. She knows who he is. She knows his character. And he's a family redeemer. Maybe she hadn't even given much thought. To Boaz, because life was so difficult and the needs were so great. But now she hears that name and she praises Yahweh. We're back to that word and that theme, Hesed. We talked about 
the Hebrew word hesed last week, which can be translated love, mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, kindness, and way more. Now here in verse 20, Naomi blesses him for his kindness or his hesed. And we've got a problem here, a problem that really is not solvable. Maybe it's, it's as we see so much in Scripture, it's a dual meaning. Whose kindness, whose hesed are we talking about here? Yahweh's or Boaz's? Maybe both. Either way, we know that every good and perfect gift comes down from a Father above comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change or shadow of turning. And so, Naomi says, praise Yahweh, praise Boaz, one or the other or both, for his kindness. And then she said, Ruth, stay where the blessings are. And so, Naomi did. She stayed in Boaz's field until the end of harvest. You know, That's one of the big things, isn't it? When we go through a difficult time, the temptation, and one of the great ways that Satan takes us way far away from the Lord is to keep us away from the places where the blessings are. To keep us away from church. To keep us away from Scripture. To keep us away from that relationship with Jesus. Wow, what what an awesome play. I saw last night over at Memorial Baptist, the screw tape letters, uh, the, the, the guys at Campbell did a great job. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday this next week. Is that right, Bert? Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You have to go. You have to go and see this. You just have to. Pack the place out. Satan is so adept at causing our focus to be in another direction. Just like My little children, you know, when I would hold them and I'd be talking to someone else and and they'd take my face, you know, and constantly be turning me back to him. We're focused over here and Satan is saying, get away from that. Look away from that. Look over here. Life is much more important over here. Life is too bad for you. You've got to go to church. Come on. What's what's God done for you lately? Now, you don't verbalize that, but I guarantee you that kind of stuff is going on. That spiritual warfare is going on. So Ruth stayed in Boaz's field until the end of the harvest and let us stay in Jesus' field until the end of harvest. In addition to praising Boaz's kindness, Naomi informed Ruth that Boaz was a family redeemer. And we're going to talk much more about this term next week in Act 3, which is going to bring this play to a thrilling conclusion. Before we move to the second half of Act 2, though, let's consider a couple of things that we find here at the end of Chapter 2 in the book of Ruth. First, Ruth had most likely worked at this point in Boaz's field for some six to seven weeks now. She carried home the same amount of food, which is very likely. Every day that she had carried home that first week, once again, you start calculating, most likely she had somewhere close to a year's supply. For Naomi and her to eat. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Is she gleaned that much? But secondly, there's no indication that Boaz had had any more contact with Ruth. So several weeks have gone by here. 
It's as though he had been love-struck on that first day. But then he'd forgotten about her. Same thing for us. It's as though God has done these incredible things for us, but now where is he? Well, just as Boaz had been doing, God had been thinking about us all of our life, all, all the time. And his care and his ability to do for us is far greater than Boaz's was. More likely, as far as Boaz is concerned, he, he realized how unorthodox his actions had been on that first day. And he wanted to avoid further contact with Ruth that could possibly fuel rumors about an illegitimate relationship between the two of them. We're going to discover as we move into chapter 3 that he had most surely been thinking about her over the course of these almost two months of harvest. I would imagine that Naomi asked Ruth many days, did Boaz speak to you today? No. She would have understood that, but she would have probably been disappointed. So Naomi got busy playing matchmaker. I mean, the harvest was coming to the end. The contact was going to be lost. And she'd been thinking about this plan for quite a while anyway. But at the end of the harvest, she told Ruth her plan. And while it was somewhat of a culturally acceptable plan, it was most certainly a bold one. What Naomi encouraged Ruth to do was nothing less than a proposal of marriage to Boaz. First of all, Ruth, fix yourself up. Take a bath, put on perfume. Ladies, I would suggest that you follow this advice. If you're going to propose to a man, take a bath, put on some perfume. That'd be a good idea. I don't know that I would encourage you to do the next thing, though. Go to the barn and see where he lies down tonight. And after he is asleep, now it says to uncover his feet and lay down at his feet. That, that really, that's not what is being said in the, in the Hebrew. What is being said is, take the blanket off his legs and then lie down beside him just as husband and wife would lie next to one another. This was an acceptable way, apparently, for a woman to propose marriage, which is why Naomi told Ruth, when you do this, he'll tell you what to do. He'll take the next step. You just do this, he'll take the next step. I, I, I suppose it was just necessary in that day for women to uh, propose to men because of the shortage of men, the number of, the, 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 the big way in which women outnumbered men. I, I read an article last week, uh, it was written by the New York, uh, New York Times writer, but it, it was done at Chapel Hill about how 60, the, the numbers there are 60% women, 40% men, and then you start narrowing it down. There's a very small pool of men for the women to get connected with in any kind of, um, uh, decent way at all at Chapel Hill. You know what, I, I I've heard Tony Evans talking about this, too. I don't know if this is um, in the African-American community or if this is in all uh, uh, of Christendom that he is projecting that in, it won't be too many years where the, the women are going to greatly outnumber the men Christians. Uh, I think about I, I've got four granddaughters, one grandson. And so I think about that and I, I pray for them. And, I, and you know, I, I was kicking myself last week that I didn't say this, so I'm glad to be able to say it this week. Ladies, young ladies, those of you who are not yet married, 
I can't tell you how many times I've seen some of you walk away from an awesome Christian guy. Don't do it. You don't have as many choices as they do. Maybe he's not. That's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. Maybe, maybe it's not fair. Maybe this guy, you know, has these little things that he does. But I'm telling you, a lot is at stake here. If you want to be married, we talked about the legitimacy of polygamy back in the olden days. I don't think that's happening again anytime soon. I don't think one man's going to marry two or three wives. We have no idea if Boaz had another wife or not. You know, this may not be as romantic as we think. I, I, I believe it is, as we'll see in a few minutes. But, but, but I'm telling you, well, you think it's funny. One day you won't. Let's move on. <clears throat> when you're 35 and you let that guy go, you know, when you were 25, then you'll be thinking, should have listened to Pastor Brad. You know, this was a socially acceptable way. Okay. Nonetheless, it was quite risky. I mean, Boaz could have mocked her as a foreign peasant proposing marriage to a wealthy socialite. Or he could have taken advantage of her sexually and, and, and pleaded entrapment and called her a prostitute. Or he could have accused her of adultery. She had not been legally, she didn't have a, a marriage certificate, so she was not legally divorced from Malin, her husband. We're assuming it was Malin. We really don't know Malin Killian. But she, she wasn't legally freed from, from the relationship with him, so it could have been that he would have said adultery legally. That could have been the case. This was risky business. And when Naomi said, go do this, Ruth said, but no, she didn't. She just said, all that you say, I will do. And she did. Once again, the Lord was in charge of the circumstances, just like Naomi had happened onto the field. Boaz laid down at the end of the barn where all of this could take place out of the view of other people. So Ruth pulled his blanket back and lay down beside him. At midnight, Boaz woke up and he was startled. Yeah, I would say there was a woman next to him. Imagine... How startled he was when immediately Ruth proposed to it to him and offered an explanation for her boldness by saying that he was a kinsman redeemer. Now, Boaz's response indicates that he'd been thinking about Ruth all along. Instead of mocking her, he praises her for the chesed she has shown to him in this proposal. There's an indication here that, that there were no legal requirements. This kinsman redeemer thing was sort of a principle as, that was being played out. But there weren't legal requirements. Ruth was not legally obligated to marry someone in Malon's clan or Elimelech's clan. And Boaz was not legally required to do the right thing and marry her. We're going to sort all of this out, what it means to be a kinsman redeemer. And when someone dies, then the nearest relative uh, marries the, the the woman so that for two reasons. Really, it's more about land than it is protection for her. But so that, that, that this the man who has died will have a name for himself. Those children that are born really rightly, legally belong to the father who died. If a person is forming, performing the act of kinsman redeemer. And I'm, I shouldn't even get into that. We'll go into it in detail next week so it'll be explained. But but. But Boaz was not legally obligated 
to do this. He was grateful that Ruth had proposed to him. And he very much wanted to marry her. He's glad that she didn't go off and find some young guy. But she had proposed to him. But even still, even though there was no legal obligation here, Boaz wanted to follow the prescribed way of law. And and, and, and there was some legal issues regarding the land that someone else had first right. And Boaz just attached Ruth to the land, which was pretty savvy of him when you think about it. But again, quite clearly, Boaz had hoped for something to occur between Ruth and him. Perhaps he hadn't proposed to Ruth for a fear of her rejection because of their age difference. There is someone nearer in kin to Malon than me, and he will, if he will fulfill his responsibility to marry you, then so be it. Yahweh's will be done. But if he will not redeem you, rest assuredly, I will. Now, go to sleep and we'll see about this tomorrow morning. I, I doubt either one of them slept very much that night. It's significant that they parted without having compromised themselves morally. This scene is charged with sexual tension. And yet, their integrity kept them from falling. The fact that Malon's near relative may choose to marry Ruth and the fact that if he didn't, the two of them would be married very soon, I'm sure helped them in their resolve. But the scripture is clear that even though there was the Strong chance that they would fall. They did not. In the morning, Boaz sent her away with much more food, uh, especially noting Naomi's need. And though, though Boaz's interaction is with Ruth, he was thinking about Naomi. He had been all along. And he appreciated all that Ruth was doing for Naomi, but he was doing his part too to help her. And by the way, ladies... Now, here's the one time you can walk away from an awesome guy, Christian guy. If, if, a, if, 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 if a man professes love for you but not for your family, if he's constantly dissing in your family, then proceed with caution. Perhaps you are, you know, not so fond of your family either. But, be, you know, if a guy's knocking your, your, your parents and your siblings, be careful about that. I mean, it could be way more trouble down the road. And look, those of you who have been married for a long time, maybe you think with good reason that someone in your spouse's family is a little bit, you know, crazy. Be careful how you deal with that. Well, Naomi told Ruth that the matter would be settled on that very day. Not a very long courtship, was it? That's another thing I'm pretty big on, not very long courtships. I couldn't talk Allison into one this short, though. It just didn't work. (laughs) This story, which began with Naomi in despair, has reached a place of great anticipation and hope. Oh, I had so planned before this sermon ever began to, to, to fully take shape. Well, before it began to take shape, I had hoped to talk about hope in the New Testament. Perhaps we'll have some time for that. Next week, there is so much application, but it it was it was crucial to get this all in before next week. And because of the snow day, 
I really want the students here when we talk about the kinsman redeemer because that's the climax of this. That's where it's all heading toward Jesus. And so we had to put a lot of information into this particular message. But one thing we know, it's just brimming with hope. A plan is in place and something wonderful may happen. Redemption seems very near for Ruth and Naomi alike. You know, it's just a small picture of the entire Old Testament. Despair every time you turn around and yet hope. A picture is being painted. This part's not filled in. But but the closer we get, the more that we can see. And this picture is going to point us to Jesus. Next week, we're going to enjoy the final act of this love story. And we're going to see that the picture is of God's beautiful grace to us through Jesus. Next week, the final piece of the puzzle will be put in place. Let's pray. Our Father, um, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this story that so many of us can identify with in so many ways. Oh, there are elements of it that are that are a little different and foreign to us. But, but Lord, there's so much of ourselves that we see in this place, so desperate, so needy, so in need of a Boaz, a Redeemer, to take up our cause and case. And Boaz ultimately did so much more for Ruth than just provide food for her and Naomi. He married her and brought her into the family, made her his own. And oh, how we long for the day that when we see Jesus face to face, we've been brought into his family, those of us who trusted his death on the cross as payment for our sins. And Lord, we give thanks. We just want to give thanks for the number of men last night who made that decision. Father, we pray for your grace and your mercy to fall upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.